Do you trust me is the title of my message. I'm not sure that that's the main idea of my message. You know, I think there's a couple of pretty uh, pointed things in this message, but you know, it's an interesting question. Do you trust me? You know, it's something that we have to grow in as Christians as we walk through this Christian walk to trust. Faith, you know, like it's like we don't come to the place where we have faith and all of a sudden we have enough faith and we can trust God again in the next crisis or the next time that we're going to be walking through something where we have to trust him. It's not like all of a sudden, oh, we can trust him because we have the faith. It's like, wow, this is going to take faith. And it's, a, you know, it's the trying of our faith that produces perseverance and it's something that has to grow in us. You know, and so how do we learn that we can trust Jesus if we never have to trust him? You know, it's quite a question, and I don't know whether I got that out of a commentary or I got that popped into my head. It seems, I think it popped into my head when I was working on this, but, you know, how do we learn that we can trust him if we never have to trust him? And that's sort of like, wow, you know, that's a tension in itself because having to trust him means that we're going to believe that he's going to be there for us and and in the end, it's going to work out the way that he would have it work out and hopefully the way that we really want it to work out, but not always. But how do we trust him? How do we learn to trust Jesus if we never have to trust him? So when you have to trust him, be encouraged because he's teaching you how to trust him, how that he is so faithful. And I think as years are added to us, we learn that he is always faithful. In a book I was reading, it's called Astonished. The author, Mike Eyre, he calls Christians away from simplistic formulas to honest and rugged faith in the mysterious and unpredictable God we serve. God is more about deepening the mystery of faith, not removing it. And Jesus should be getting bigger the longer we walk with him. Life and faith should grow to be more profound and wondrous not less. God asks us to follow him in tension, frustration, and difficulty because he wants our trust, not just our intellectual agreement. How do we learn that we can trust Jesus if we never have to trust him? You know, we're going to be looking at the first few verses in the book of Ruth this morning. So if you want, I've got the text here that I'm going to be putting them up on the screen, but there's Bibles in the pew. And uh, we're going to be looking at this, and we are going to be seeing these tensions, these difficulties, and God's expectations of the people in this story. We'll be seeing the curses and blessings that Moses spoke of played out in the lives of these people. The story of Ruth is a beautiful interjection of love that is set in a period of the judges, when, which is an era marked with immorality, idolatry, and war. In Judges chapter 21, 25, it's the last book in Judges. It's the last verse just before the book of Ruth starts, and the book of Ruth is right in this era in this, at this time in history. And it says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did what was right or seemed right in their own eyes. When we are living in a society that is getting more and more aggressive in their rebellion towards God, we must not let ourselves become like those spoken of in Psalm 2 who are crying out, let us break off their chains or break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery from God. You know, this is exactly where society is at today. They're crying out this cry. Let us free ourselves from the slavery of God. 
And you know, it, goes, it says in the first couple of verses there, why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time and futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. You know, people are becoming more and more rebellious towards God, doing what seems right in their own eyes, thinking nothing of consequences and assuming that they're going to get away with whatever they're doing that is going against what the Lord says and the Lord's rule. The book of Ruth, it's a heartwarming story of the devotion and of the faithfulness of God. It records the life of Ruth, a Moabite widow, who is sovereignly led by God to leave her homeland and to go with her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, into the town of Bethlehem. In the key verse of the book, it shows us, you know, something really special here. It shows us the real nature of what commitment means. When she says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Whenever, wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. I was talking to someone this week and I was just explaining a little bit about this and I was thinking, you know, I should stamp that into every wedding I do and speak about commitment to one another. When you look at that commitment, like when we're becoming one flesh as husband and wife, it's wherever you go, I will go. It's not like I don't want to go there. You should be going where I'm going. You know, the tension we have this is a sideline. But you know, in Genesis, part of the curse was that it says that the, the woman would desire to have the man, but he would rule over her saying to me that there's always going to be a tension between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And it's when we make Jesus the center of our life, it subdues that tension. It helps us in our relationships. But we see God honoring Ruth's commitment by guiding her to the field of a man named Boaz, where she gathers grain and eventually finds a husband. The book closes with a brief genealogy which Boaz's name Ruth's new husband is prominent in the, as the great-grandfather of King David, through whom Jesus Christ would come. The book of Ruth is usually used to emphasize the story of Ruth finding a husband, you know, after losing the one she had. Like, it's, a, it's really, it's a great story in the big picture of things. But, you know, there's so much more to the book of Ruth, such as, we, you know, you can look in it and you see love, you see devotion, loyalty, relationships, loving kindness, trauma, restoration, promise, hope, and on. You know, it's so full of all these good things. And it's when we do as God says and we take him at his word that it stirs faith within our hearts. And uh, Jesus becomes bigger and bigger the longer we walk with him. At least that's the way it needs to go and it should be going. Jesus should be, coming, be getting bigger and bigger in our lives. The implication throughout the book of Ruth is a word that should encourage us that God is watching over his people. He's watching over his people and he brings to pass what is good. You know, this book is about God and he is ruling over everything and he brings blessings to those that trust him. The book of Ruth is one of these amazing, you know, many amazing life-changing stories that we have in the scriptures available to us to read at our leisure anytime we want to. And it's so interesting, you know, such an interesting read. It's one of those reads in the, in the scriptures that's hard to put down. Like there's, I find the historical books, you know, from the beginning, from Genesis 
and it sort of breeze over Leviticus and you know some of numbers and those things about the temple and all that tabernacle, but uh, about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their lineage and Egypt and Joseph and you know Ruth and Esther. These stories they're just they're hard to put down when you get reading them, you know, in a devotional time and you're reading and you're just into them. It's the imagination, my imagination. It just goes. You know, the thing that ties this book to the overall picture of God and his whole counsel is the brief genealogy that closes the book out. It establishes that Ruth is an ancestor of David, and as a result, she is an ancestor of Jesus. There's a famine in the land, there's a drought, there's no food, and there were bandits in the land. It wasn't a great time in the promised land. Life was tough, and as the bad as the famine of the food was and that there was a shortage of food, there was another famine that was going on in the land and that was a spiritual famine that was taking place. In 1 Samuel 3.1, it says, now in those days, messages from the, from the Lord were very rare and visions were quite uncommon. You know, that's a sad state for a nation to be in. And they're in the promised land and they're experiencing this. This past week, an amazing week, obviously, when you see this up front here, around 200 kids here at the church hearing the word of the Lord because many of you took the initiative to volunteer and to help out with that. And, you know, it takes that kind of cooperation with God because, you know, I believe that that whole thing started with a vision from God and it birthed into that. So what you saw here started in the spirit realm in, you know, in the eyes of maybe one or maybe a few people, but it started there and became life, became real. You know, and it takes our cooperation with God to see this kind of thing happen. And it takes work on our part to make the church go forward throughout our society. You know, it doesn't just happen. It never just happens. And, you know, we do the possible and then God takes care of the impossible. This was a time in history when God's people were not making any effort to live out the life that God had set out before them. Elimelech and his family were searching outside of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. They were searching outside of the house of bread for provision. Judges 2 provides the context for understanding the opening verse of Ruth when it says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now this is a, a paraphrase. Like it says, uh, is shorthand for in the days when the Lord's people forsook the Lord, rebelled against his rule, each man doing what he saw fit, suffered the consequences and needed a rescuer. Judges 3, 10 through 13, it shows the spiritual faithfulness of one generation cannot secure the spiritual faithfulness of the next. I wish we could do that with our kids I just wish we could stamp them and it would be done. But they've got to come to a place in their lives where they need to make the decision to make the effort to see the kingdom of God moving forward. So it was in the days, it was the days when the judges ruled. This is what it was like. Judges 2, 14, 15, it sets out the consequences for the Lord's people. And it says, in his anger, God handed them over to raiders to plunder them, who plundered them. He sold them in their, uh, to their enemies all around them, 
whom no longer or whom they were no longer able to resist. You know this, you apply this to our lives today as we ignore the Lord's rule in our lives. The enemy comes against us all of a sudden we can't resist the enemy because we're ignoring the things of the spirit and you know the uh, he has sent angels to serve those who received salvation. All that's good stuff. Whenever they went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Judges 2.16 then sets out the role of the judges. They were deliverers who were raised up by the Lord who saved his people out of the hands of these raiders. So Ruth 1... Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, it helps understand the significant truths about living in a world where the Lord and his rule are ignored. So in our day and age, the book of Ruth, we see this here. And this can, help, can be an incredible help to all of us in a day and age when society around us has become more and more aggressive at turning their backs on God. They're making a real effort at that in our world today. You know, so we're going to read through these first five verses here in the book of Ruth. And it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went who lived for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Merlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Milan and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left with her, without her two sons and her husband. You know, one thing about this whole text here is because this is what, it caught my attention as I was looking at this. And I was thinking, okay, you know, them guys going into Moab, is that, did God do all of this because they did that? You know, and as I'm wondering that, and it, you know, I was reading and there's a study in here, you know, they, the comment was that we have to be careful about reading too much into the text. To be emphatic about the deaths and the difficulties that this family was experiencing and saying that it was the Lord's judgment and by, because they went to Moab and because they married the two Moabite, Moabite women, you know, it wouldn't be right for us to do that because that's not what the text says right here. Nevertheless, you know, at the same time, we must be aware that God's warnings of punishment, it's no idle threat. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. See, the promised land, that wasn't no ordinary land. It was the land that the Lord promised to give to Abraham. He says in Genesis 12, 7, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. I will give the, uh, this land to your descendants. After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abraham, Look, as far as you can see in every direction, north, south, east, and west, I am giving you all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. Go and walk through the land in every direction, for I am giving it to you. It was a land that the Lord had promised to give his people. The descendants of Abraham, when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, the land flowing with milk and honey. It was the promised fruitful land where food was abundant and where the Lord's people could enjoy the good life 
that the Lord had promised them and prepared for them. So why was there a famine in the land? We need to ask that question. Why was there a famine happening in the promised land? Why was there no food in the land that the Lord had promised would be full of abundant fruit? The answer is the Lord's warning of punishment is no idle threat. Leviticus 26 contains one of the many warnings the Lord gave his rescued people as he prepared them for life in the promised land. There was the promise of blessing as they followed his decrees and were careful to obey his commands, including the promise of rain in season and the promise that the ground produce, would produce its crops and the trees would produce their fruit. These were promises that God said to them. If they would follow his decrees, they would all be blessed. The land would be blessed. However, there was also a warning that would happen if they didn't listen to the Lord and they didn't obey the Lord. Deuteronomy 28.15 says that, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, then if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. Remember Gideon saying, Lord, you know, where are all these promises, all this, you know, blessing that you had promised our forefathers? How come we don't see that anymore? They were so lost, they didn't realize that it was a fruit of what they were doing in life, abandoning the Lord. He says, if you fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this. This is in the word that he gave them, like it was written down for them. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases, fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you and so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you do not listen to me, I will punish you seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because their soil will not yield crops nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. As I, you know, like watching these World War II movies I've mentioned before, I've, I don't know why I watch that stuff once in a while. It's interesting history, but there was a Jewish lady sitting and, you know, she made the comment, I wish he would have chosen another race. You know, we're accountable for what we know. You know, they were given the truth. They were given the law and God had opened up, you know, the way of life to them and they knew it and they turned their back and chose to go you know, other ways that were very destructive. And it's the fruit of that. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The Lord was acting in accordance with his warning that he had given. Bethlehem was a fertile place, a place of plenty, and normally abundant grain harvests provided much to eat. It was a desirable place to live, but the house of bread became a house of no bread in accordance with the Lord's warning. The Lord never makes idle threats. Which war his warnings are as certain as his promises. We do not live in the promised land today. Our physical circumstances are not those of the people of Israel. However, through his word, the Lord warns us of punishment for all who forsake or ignore him. He warns us of the reality of his anger against sin both in the present and in the future. Famine is not only, the, not only the only way that God 
punishes the rebellious. He has, you know, he's, there's many ways that he has expressed this throughout history. Romans 1, 18 through 32, he says, His wrath is being revealed in the present age against all godlessness and wickedness of men. As people exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator, he gives them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And he warns repeatedly of the future of his wrath, a day when his righteous judgment will be revealed and he will judge the world with justice and the man that he has appointed Jesus, his son. Romans 5.5 5 says that because, but because you are stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourselves. For he has set a day of judging the world with justice by the man he appointed and he proved to everyone that this is, who this is by raising him from the dead. Every warning God gives of judgment must be taken seriously including those giving, given to professing Christians. If we play with some secret sin, we need to take heed the warning that is given to us in Galatians 6, and 7, 6, 7, and 8. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Understanding that the Lord's warnings of punishment are no idle threat gives responsibility for us and to us to share his warnings with others. God, God's warnings are an essential part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians are called to be like watchmen on a city wall who warn inhabitants of dangers that are coming. Now, Preparing this message, I was, last time I spoke, I spoke out of the book of Esther. And when I was speaking out of the book of Esther, I had in the back of my mind or in my spirit, I felt like, okay, the, the next time I speak, I feel like I'm supposed to speak out of the book of Ruth. And I thought, oh, that's a nice book. That's a good book. There's lots of, a great love story in that book. And then as I'm reading through the book of Ruth, and I come across, I couldn't get past the first five verses, and I really felt like God was saying he wanted me to speak from there. And I'm looking at it, and I'm reading it, and I'm thinking, oh, well, what's in there? I thought, first five verses, that's what I'm going to talk about. There's hardly anything there to talk about. But it, you know, so as I've been preparing this message, and this is the message that comes out of those first five books, and we come to these next verses that I'm going to be reading here, out of Ezekiel, this word has been extremely convicting to me. And, uh, you know, like, uh, for some reason, you know, like, I've been, I've been nervous about doing this before. But I've never had such a struggle in my spirit to get up here and to be able to share this message. It's uh, not an easy one to do. But as we go on, it says in Ezekiel 3, 16 and 17, he says, After seven days, the Lord gave me a message. He said, Son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman for Israel. Whenever you receive a message from me, warn people immediately. If I warn the wicked, saying, you are under the penalty of death, but you fail to deliver the warning, they will die in their sins, and I will hold you responsible for their deaths. If you warn them, and they refuse to repent and keep on sinning, they will die in their sins, but you will have saved yourself because you obeyed me. 
If righteous people turn away from their righteous behavior and ignore the obstacles I put in their way, they will die. And if you do not warn them, they will die in their sins. None of their righteous acts will be remembered. And I will hold you responsible for their deaths. But if you warn righteous people not to sin, and they listen to you and do not sin, they will live, and you will have saved yourself too. That's pretty heavy-duty stuff. People need to know that God is right to be angry. The world hates that. The world thinks, like, who does he think he is? You know, I've got my rights, and, like, who does he think he is? But God is right to be angry about sin, and God is right to punish sin. And that day of wrath is coming, according to Scripture. His warnings are themselves acts of kindness and patience, calling to repentance. The Lord is slow to anchor. His wrath does not come quickly, but it will come to those who believe his warning. We must proclaim that. Someday, you know, or some, they'll laugh at us. They'll think that God, at the thought of God punishing sin. Others are hearing these, his warnings, you know, they just sort of think this is for other people. This isn't for me. The reaction of others can't stop us from declaring the warnings that God is encouraging us to share with the people around us, saved and unsaved. And, you know, so Ruth 1.1, it illustrates the Lord's warnings of punishment are no idle threat. Ignoring the Lord's rule is something that we cannot take lightly. Verses 1 and 2, they're telling us about the time and the place of the story. Tell, to telling us, it goes from telling us the time, the place, the story, to telling us about the man and his family because of a famine went to live for a while in another country, in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech. You know, and Elimelech was a great man for an Israel, or a great name for a, a man from is, uh, Israel. Uh, it means uh, God is my king. It expresses the right attitude of God's people, someone who is submitted to the rule of God in their lives. God is my king. The tragedy of these verses, however, is that Elimelech never lived up to the, his name. Instead of submitting to God's rule, Elimelech, like the rest of his generation, did what he thought was right in his own eyes. In Judges 21, 25, in those days, Israel had no king. They had no leadership. And all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. You know, we're not positive, you know, because the exact details aren't given in the story here. But I think that it's an affair and assumption to say that before the famine, Elimelech and his family probably had a a pleasant life in Bethlehem. Naomi, Elimelech's wife, her name means pleasant. They had two sons and they lived in a prosperous area. And they, were, uh, they belonged to the prominent tribe of Judah. And they were Ephrathites, meaning that they were in the lineage of those who established Bethlehem, the house of bread. But then the famine came. And so they went to live for a little while in the country of Moab. If Bethlehem was, not, was, you know, was a great place for an Israelite to live, Moab was probably the opposite of that. The Moabites were descendants of Lot. And after a sordid incident with his daughter, the relationships between 
Moab and Israel had never been good. It was Balak, king of Moab, who hired Balaam to curse Israel. And the Moabite women seduced the men of Israel sexually, and they also seduced them to worship their gods, causing the Lord's anger to burn against his people. Numbers 25 says, while the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves having sexual relations with the local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods, so the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this way, Israel joined in worship of Baal of Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. So it's no surprise that this entire, or this, that as they entered the promised land, the people of Israel were commanded not to take the treaty or the friendships of the Moabites. Deuteronomy 23.3 says that no Ammonite, Ammonite or Moabite or any other of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. You know, we don't know if Elimelech knew this, but he should have. Because when they come into the promised land, they were to take the law of the Lord and they were to read it to the nation once every seven years so that they wouldn't forget it. And the record of Judges shows that this command was obviously neglected. In no time, the generations grew up knowing nothing about the Lord. And when the Lord's word is ignored, the Lord's rules are soon forgotten or ignored. And men like Elimelech do as they see fit and to the detriment of themselves and their families. Elimelech may have intended to live in Moab only for a while, but it says that he remained there. And throughout scripture, the Lord's people are commanded repeatedly not to marry outside of their people. And Milan and Kilian would never have married Moabite women if they were not moved to Moab. The decisions taken by us as parents, it affects our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids' kids. It affects them. And for us to think that it doesn't, I think that we need to really stop and think that one out. It seems pretty, cl pretty clear that the plan to leave the promised land in order to save the lives of their families wasn't really that good of an idea. With Elimelech dead, the focus now shifts to Naomi, his wife, and the sad consequences of her stay in Moab. Her husband is gone, her two sons are gone, and she's now a lonely widow in a foreign land. What a bitter pill to swallow. No wonder she says in verse 20, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Not that she was a bitter in spirit, but that she had had bitter experiences. Naomi was discovering firsthand that ignoring the Lord's rule was something to be taken very seriously. And I think we need to see that ourselves in our own lives. It's not something to just shrug our shoulders at. It's a serious thing. In the long run, it's a serious thing. Fruit is produced. When we ignore the Lord's rule, thinking that we know best, there may be short-term benefits and there may be short-term gain, but in the long run, they will not last. The name Christian means someone who belongs to Christ, to God's anointed king. Elimelech's failure should prompt us as Christians to ask whether I'm living up to my name as Christian. 
We need to ask ourselves, am I submitting to the rule of Christ? Am I submitting to the rule of Christ Jesus or am I doing as I see fit? When trials come and I experience the consequences of living in a society which is forsaking God, what am I doing? Do I try and devise my own plan or do I seek the wise instructions of the king of kings, the one to whom I belong? The decisions Imelech made affect his, affected his wife and his sons big time. When I make decisions that will affect those closest to me, what criteria do I use? What am I following? Do I act in fear or do I act in faith? Ignoring the Lord's rule is something to be taken seriously. It has bitter consequences both for those who ignore his rule and also those like Naomi that are affected by the godless decisions of someone else. Tasting the Lord's bitter pill prepares the way for experiencing the goodness of God. And you'll say, you know, you wonder how the tragic story of the first five verses of this chapter, how does this fit in with the Lord's kindness? Especially given the way Naomi views her circumstances here. Listen to what she has to say just in this first chapter. She says, the Lord's hand has gone against me. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon my life. As Naomi considered her sad circumstances, she understood rightly that God was in control. God allowed this bitter pill for Naomi to taste. But how does it fit with his transforming kindness? As we carefully trace the Lord's dealing with men throughout history, Men and women in the Bible, we see that different aspects of God's character and how it all fits together. This means that tasting his bitter pill is never inconsistent with his kindness. The opening verses of Ruth tell us that tasting the Lord's bitter pill can often be a necessary preparation for undeserving people to experience his kindness. This is common with the Lord's people all throughout history. Luke, Acts, or Acts, Luke writes in Acts 14, he says, After preaching the good news in Derby, making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. Obviously, a little struggle going on here. Reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The Christian life is not for the faint of heart. For Naomi tasting the Lord's bitter pill was not the only experience that she had in the Lord because we see a hint in verse six when it says that news came to Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. And it's similar news that brings hope today to those who have tasted the bitter, this bitter pill in life. And many of us have at different times and different ways. And the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem is that he came to give aid to his people. Bethlehem means house of bread, but it was a house with no bread. Jesus, he is the bread of life, and he is here this morning for those who are hungry. You know, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, we get hungry, and Jesus, the bread of life, is here to feed the hungry. He's here to meet you just where you're at. 
Maybe you've taken a wrong turn somewhere along life's journey. I think we all do at times in our lives. We take wrong turns. We ignore the rule of God at times in our life, and we reap consequences because of it. And sometimes they can be pretty extreme and severe, like Naomi's and Elimelech here. It can be so extreme. But the Lord, the bread of life, is here with his arms wide open. His mercies are new every morning. God does not come to condemn us. His arms are wide open. He's allowed you to come to this point in your life so that he can show you his loving kindness. And God is calling the prodigals home. People that maybe walked with him at one time and are not walking with him today. He's calling the prodigals home. And if you're listening to this message, it's not an accident that you're hearing this message. And I would perk up my ears if I were you online or wherever you're at. I would listen to what the Spirit is saying because the warnings of the Lord, like his promises, he's serious about them. You know, maybe you've never heard this message before. Maybe you've never heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus had come and he's died for your sins. He took your place because we're sinners, we're lost. We can't do it of ourselves. Jesus, the bread of life, wants to quench the hunger of our souls. So with that being said, you know, life can be very bitter. And I know that it is at times for all of us. Sometimes we are the cause of the bitterness that comes into our lives because of something we have done and it's, we're reaping the consequences of that. But sometimes circumstances happen around and to us that we have no control over. Jesus, the bread of life, can feed you to the point where you're spiritually nourished, where you're healthy and you're whole. He's for us, he's reaching out to us, but we need to respond. Just like we need to pick up and do a lot of work to see a number of these kids come to giving their lives to Christ for the first time and recommitting their lives. It took a lot of work on the people's parts. It's for us to respond to the call of the Lord when he says, I'm here for you this morning. Today is the day of salvation. And I want to encourage if you're hearing me, respond to what the Lord is calling. And it's not me calling you. I got nothing to gain out of calling you to a walk with the Lord. But you have a lot to gain to respond to him, to the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit in me calling you. It's the Holy Spirit that has caused me to put this word down on this page that has made me very nervous to be able to speak it here this morning. And so I would just ask us to stand. You know, can you trust me? Jesus asked, you know, like I had at the beginning on this title. You know, do you trust me? And so, Father, I just want to pray for your people. I just pray, Holy Spirit, move over this congregation this morning and and online there, Lord, move by your spirit. And I pray, Lord, you'd reveal to each one of us, Lord God, the areas that maybe we don't trust you or we've even walked away, Father God, or turned our back, ignoring your rule in our lives because we fear. And I just want to impart faith, Lord God, into your people this morning, all through the congregation, all in line, Lord God. I impart faith to them in Jesus' name. Just as the Apostle Paul says, stir up the gifts that are within you from the laying on of my hands in presbytery, of the presbytery. By faith, I lay on hands on every one of you in this body, and I just say, in Jesus' name, receive the faith that you need to believe and trust in what Jesus wants to move you into in life. 
And so we just impart that and I just seal that up with your love, Jesus. And I bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy the community outside. It's going to be great.